Good morning. Good morning. Just in time. We were waiting for you to pray for us, and you weren't here, so I had to do it. So that was okay, though, right? <laughs> oh, the red Mustang got you. I know. It was gl- mm, I, I can totally understand that. <laughs> so you're excused. <laughs> Thank you for coming. <laughs> okay, well, listen. Here's what, what I want to do. We, we have... Um, It was an interesting week of homework. She took us back to go back through 1 Corinthians 15 and do some cross-referencing. I did not expect her to do that. That was kind of surprised me. So maybe I went beyond what we were supposed to do last week. I'm not sure. But there was no indications anywhere for me to follow in that. So I just did what I thought I was supposed to do. And so we pretty much kind of covered it all, but I do want to go back and just kind of highlight and we'll do some uh, comparing and looking at some of the additional cross-references. But for for starting, what I kind of like to do, since this is our, our big hurrah at the end of things, if you have your 1 Corinthians at a glance chart, if you would pull that out. What I would like to do is kind of journey back through what all we have learned so in our study this time, because this has just been such a practical kind of a study for us. And I want to hear from you all, which means you guys have to put your thinking caps on. Um, and I want to hear from you all. Anything that God has uh, either revealed to you or spoke to you or... Um, even maybe some applications of these things. I, I know that you guys don't get to hear all the reports, but so often many of you stop me and we sit out in the hall even and chat at length about uh, applications of the things that we're studying in the moment that are going on in their churches right now or going on in their private lives. And this is what we want to hear. We want to see how it takes root in the life and how it transforms, how it nurtures or ministers to you in some way. So let's just start with going back through 1 Corinthians on the whole and remind ourselves of all the great things we've learned. So, and I think what I'll do is I'll take it by sections according to topics, and then you can pull from it anything that um, speaks to you or has spoken to you in any way. Where we started, tell me what was our first segment division. Does somebody remember where the segments are? You should have your chart. Where are your segments? Okay, divisions, um, and it was chapters one through four. Okay, so tell me, in the, in the opening of 1 Corinthians, were there um, insights that you have found that have been especially significant or meaningful or that you had great application for in some way? What do you remember about what we looked at in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4? You know, that report was interesting because in some ways it it kind of feels like the, there must have been some pretty serious things going on in this church that someone felt it necessary to write it down to, and then go to see Paul. Because you're not talking like dropping a letter in the mail. They went to see him. And so this was the the family, Chloe's family, and I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly, but they went and they made this report. What was the report that they gave? 
Okay. Would you say that we are still struggling with that in our churches today on the whole? How, how do divisions affect us in the body of Christ? What kind of problems do, do divisions actually cause? Wow, that's an analogy you won't forget quickly. Yeah, so truly, when we talk about these divisions, what is the hollowed out part? What happened in the lives, what does happen in the lives of Christians that causes us to go to those places of divisions and strife? You know, for me as a teacher, this is one of the things that I, it really breaks my heart the most is, is I see every week, week in and week out, when we go into church services, the, the room is packed. It's packed. We have a huge, huge church here. And yet, how many come to be nurtured, to be fed, to be strengthened? And I do think this is, this is the enemy's foothold. He gets in the lives of people. He keeps them so busy with the day in and day out that they forget the essential. Um, the letter in um, Revelation to Ephesus that says you've left your first love, I think is really... Uh, I think kind of at the heart. It is the heart. You, you, have for, you have forgotten that your first priority in relationship with God is to feed your soul truth. But if you're not in the word of God, how do you, how do you stay affixed? It is even, you know, as Glenn said, the, the most sturdy, or at least on the surface, those who seem to be the strongest, the most mature, you know, they've walked with the Lord forever, and yet all of a sudden they fall in this way. Now, that does not mean they don't love the Lord. It doesn't mean they're not saved. It doesn't mean, it, but it means something has happened in the, over time in their heart and in their spiritual walk with God that they have allowed Satan to get in and cause this kind of division to occur, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I can tell you, I've heard that from from people. I wouldn't name anyone in this room, but from people in my life who have said, "Well, I if I say, well, how are you doing with your homework? Oh, it's it's good. I I got it done, but I'll just wait until class and let you tell me." I'm like, no, don't, don't count on me. I need you to do your work. First of all, that's how we get the dynamics of conversation going. If the classroom is dead quiet, that means people are not digging in on their own. It just means I'm the only one dig digging in, right? And we, you do not want that. And people begin to follow people when they stop actually having a heart relationship. You, really, our time in the Word of God is the intimacy and sometimes I have heard complaints about inductive Bible study precept on the whole, that it does not lend itself toward 
uh, this kind of intimacy that people think that you're supposed to be attending. And where they're missing the boat on that interpretation is when you are truly doing the work, if you are actually digging in to do, make your list, to mark your words, to do your keyword study, all that is a transforming of the mind. And I can tell you, I have had more moments of worship, real worship, between myself and God the Father in private intimacy at my computer desk, far more than any Sunday morning or any other kind of environment that I go into. So truly, the method is not a barrier. It's a challenge in the very beginning when you're first learning because you're a little distracted. But once you have learned the steps and kind of learned the process, it draws you closer to God. So divisions come when you start following men. You start following men when you stop being really deeply in the word of God and have, have not really built that relationship with God, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Sometimes we go too far the other way, don't we? We get the extra time, and that's when we really lack off. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. I was talking with one of my friends uh, who I do this study with recently, and I said to her, so we're going to have like seven or eight weeks off between right now, this, this being our last class, we won't be back until, what is it, January 7 or 8 or something like that? January 28? Oh, oh, wow. Okay. Oh, my goodness. That's even... I can handle this break. Yeah, no, you say that. You're going to have to make me, I'm going to probably actually make a whole quilt. <laughs> um, what, but I, my response to her was, well, what are we going to study between now and then privately, just her and I? What are we gonna, what, let's get together and do something. Do you have any questions? Are you curious about anything special right now? Because she's always got questions. And I said, well, let's do that, you know, whatever that is. Um, because if you don't plan you plan to fail, right? And so 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9 says it, I think, really, really well. He, he speaks about um, God being faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is into fellowship with him that we are to, to be drawn into, and that is the thing that's the anchor. And if we will stay there, then we will not end up being followers of men. We will, in fact, be followers of, of Christ. And that way, if at any point in your life, you're, the person that you are following, whether it's your pastor or a teacher or uh, a spiritual friend in your life, when they are removed, when they are gone from your life, you, fall, you, are, you are affixed to the one who is the source of that truth, not the other. And that, I think, in this church, the letter that went out, these people that uh, this family of 
of Chloe who went to Paul and said, there is a big problem in this Corinthian church. And it's because they were not being followers of Jesus Christ. They were being followers of men. Okay, so that's in one through four. Now the next one was five to five and six. What did, was our theme there? Yeah, a responsibility to, to be making judgments. Now, there's a variety of ways that can play out, and sometimes it's a, a, a judgment individually, sometimes it's a judgment about something on a practical matter, sometimes it's on an individual matter, sometimes it's actually a, a discerning kind of a thing. It would be even an exercise of a spiritual gifting to discern between what's right and wrong, which is what um, God gave to Israel the nation when he established them and said, I want you to discern between the clean and the unclean, between what's good and what's not good, what's right and what's not right. And so you have, on a daily basis, this was something that was built into their their daily worship system and as a practical expression of what God wants us to do in our in our new covenant with him as well. So what did you learn in 5 and 6? Were there any specific things that stood out to you? Yes. Yeah. Do you guys think we do a good job at this thing of removing the immoral brother from our midst? How do we fail in that? Have you have you seen an example of that even where it ended up really damaging the church on the whole and the fellowship of the brethren? I don't know a real example, but he really brings out that it's not just the folks in sin among you, but it affects the whole one. Right, right. That you really need to deal with. How, how often have you heard people even say to you in you know, rejection of you trying to correct them, saying, well, it's, it's my life and it's only going to affect me anyway, so, you know, don't try to correct me on that, right? Also, there's the issue if you just go to church and you're always watching the pastor and it's just you and the pastor, you don't really have a relationship with people that much. And only part of the church body that it's not operating as a body is you're just learning from a person and, and so you're not even able to, to be corrected or to help other people. But yeah. You're disconnected still. You're not a unit. Well, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 10, he gives us the exhortation there. He says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete, a unit, in other words, unified, the same mind and the same judgment. You aren't going to get there without relationships, right? Okay. Oh, Yes. This was, this was one thing I got to tell you that when we transcended from military life to civilian life, that was the most difficult for me. And it took us a long time, really quite a few years, because in the military, you, you already have this common bond sort of, as those of you who've been military, you get it. Um, and so, and so you immediately get drawn into almost a family unit. And especially if you're living overseas, as we were for many of those years, you don't have any other church to go to. You got one, 
it's the chapel and that is your only choice so you all do who have faith in god all do come together and then you see each other the commissary and the bx and the swimming pool with the kids and the it becomes a family but in a place like austin texas you can show up to church and then go home and never see them the rest of the week so you are in danger as you have said of getting disconnected or never establishing real intimate relationship so although the subject matter in first corinthians 5 is about removing the immoral brother it also kind of comes around to uh, building emotional relationships you got to know your brother right right and certainly you can't um divorce yourself from um not knowing what's going on in their life and, and you and you have to have that relationship can you just correct anybody I mean can I just walk up to somebody and just say hey you know shame on you right I would yeah but I wouldn't <laughs> I would not have friends for very long right um yeah thank you <laughs> so yeah right exactly you're right exactly um but, you know, actually, when you bring that up, that's kind of a good example. But did that stop John from doing what he should have done? He, was he right in what he did? Yes. So here's the deal. When you see blatant sin, what is you, our responsibility in that? Yeah, to call him on it at some point. Now, certainly, what? tell me what would be your steps? What would be your processes for how you would want to? You've now recognized there's someone who's in absolute, and it's overt, kind of a, uh, I use the word gross, meaning big sin. This is an overt kind of thing that you just, it's in your face, right? You know they're in sin. They're claiming to be a Christian. They're showing up at church every Sunday morning. Maybe they're even you know, ministering in the church in some capacity, right? Who knows? But now you know. Now what? Okay, good. You're following steps then that the scripture lays out for us, right? We have, the scripture does teach us kind of a process. How do you handle the immoral man? Well, this text in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, it does not go through those steps, right? But do you think they took those steps? I think so. It doesn't say that, but what it says is bottom line, when it all was said and done, if they did not respond to the processes of a person coming to them privately, then, then by two coming in, and then bringing in the elders, and then bringing in the whole church, they finally had to bring in the whole church and have him expelled. And the church, by the way, what was the church expected to do, the collective church expected to do, once a brother is brought before them and uh, challenged on an overt uh, sin like this? I mean, this guy was having his father's wife. Yes. And how, how, and what is the end goal in doing this expelling of an immoral person? It is. It, you're, well, yeah, that, that was kind of harsh. Was, and final. <laughs> One good thing about that, you'd never have that problem again. <laughs> but anyway. That's right. So it, so what we can see and what we've learned here is it really has a two-sided effect. It affects us 
on the whole as well as the individual. The first step is to challenge him. Now, how does it affect the whole if you don't expel him? When, you, when the whole church is aware of it and knows it? Hmm? Yes, it does. Especially if you have an environment where you have a spiritual leader, you've got your pastors, you've got your elders, you've got your teachers, whoever you feel is in some kind of place of uh, kind of having a little bit of authority to be able to say something, right? And they don't say anything, and they know, and you know they know. How does that make you feel? Okay, <laughs> we got two different opinions here. Oh, sin's great. And he's like, uh, no, I'm angry, right? And I can tell you there's a, is there a, an anger that's, that would be considered righteous? That's okay to be angry at the person that, how, how many of you say, have heard people say, well, judge not, lest you be judged? How many times have heard, you heard that? What do you now know about that kind of a statement? It is misquoted. Good job, Becky. Because is it our place to judge, make judgments? That, to discern, and discerning requires us. As a matter of fact, Jesus, how many times did Jesus, you know, teach us that you were, you were to look at them? I mean, even Jesus himself said, many of you will say unto me, Lord, Lord, and I will say unto you what? I never knew you. So Jesus made judgment, and of course, he's God, so he gets to do that, right? But on the other hand, he turned around and also said, you will know a tree by its fruit, with the expectation, therefore, of being what? that you have to look at something and call a judgment on that. As a matter of fact, we actually see this very subtly all over in Scripture where a scenario is presented and we are expected to kind of look at it and, and take pieces of it and put it together and say, this is my conclusion based on what I'm observing. The gospel of, uh, uh, or the um, writing of James talks about that. A person who has a faith in words only, what is it? It's a dead faith, and it's worthless. So you have to put it into action. Yes, you do it in love. Yes, there's a process. But the bottom line is, your heart has to be right about the attitude of judging. And that is, you have to understand, it's not just a responsibility. It's really your privilege. Why? How has it become a privilege? Well, the scripture calls it that, so... Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Well, I know you may not like that word, but that is what the scripture calls it. And I'm just, I think what, here, and you know what, this might be even part of this underlying message in here is we have to get our attitude in line with what God says. God judges. It's not a negative. Because as a matter of fact, is righteousness still righteous if it refuses to judge sin? No. Yes. No. Absolutely. We are, and that's not what we are doing, right? Right. 
to lovingly, let's say it's an adultery, help them deal with the issue they just shouldn't. And this, this really disturbs me. So I think it's a responsibility to tell them. Absolutely. Them yes. Back into faith. So what do you recommend that you, you know, want us to do? We witness what's going on in a congregation where members are, where there's just shunning. Okay. okay. Good. So what do we think? Yes. That's right. Actually, that was one of the verses we did look at was that idea that you are to treat them as you would an unbeliever. How do you treat an unbeliever? You do try. Now, at, what would you say would be the standard that you would set for bringing them back into the fold? Repentance. Now, see, here's the thing. But for the grace of God... There go I, right? We understand that principle, but we don't apply it very well sometimes, especially if we've been the one who's been victimized or we've been the one that has been, um, the sin has been most egregiously been against. If you're the wife, <laughs> it's pretty, it, it's hard to forgive sometimes, right? But you want to and you need to want to. And what you have to do is look look. Uh, for what God would want in it. And I do think that, again, we're back to those first four chapters where we said it's all about staying connected to the source, the one who is the, the one who exhibits grace, the one who exhi exhibits forgiveness. And how does that get demonstrated? So I know when we did um, our Kings and Prophets study, we were looking at this, how often did God forgive and let them continue to come back and he would bless them again and then they'd go again for a while and then they'd start falling down. But he always was, was drawing them back to himself. His greatest desire was that they would simply repent and come back, right? And if that's really our heart, if our heart is that we want to see people be in right relationship with God, we have to, we have to be pretty pragmatic about there is no one who is without sin. No, not one, right? And not even us. Absolutely. That's right. You are. That's a great, a great one to be to bring up. Love others as you would have, or do unto others as you'd have others do unto you. You're going to fail. I'm going to fail. And when we do, what what do we want our brothers and sisters in Christ to do? with us in response. If in fact we come to repentance, and I can tell you this, if you're a true believer, you will. You will come to repentance. Yes. Right. It absolutely is. Okay, now here's another point to be brought out about this. Of course, now there's a difference between the overt sin and then the subtle things, this, the, the, the more discreet sins that can go on in lives of people as well. If you're closing a friend to someone that you see their sin, and maybe you're the only one that would see it, but if you see it, then it's between the two of you, and you handle that differently, right? It's all about love. Have you noticed how often 1 Corinthians keeps coming back to love as the, as the formula through which without love, it's nothing, right? So in judgment also, there has to be the heart of love 
which is given to you through through God himself, because it can't even be a human-based love. It can't be a, a, the kind of love that says, if you're nice to me, then I'll be nice back. It has to be an unconditional, sacrificial kind of love. And so judgment must be done in that. Now, so that we don't forsake it uh, too much, we want to go on to chapter 6, where it's also about judgment, but this is a different kind of judgment. This is called, this is the, su the subject of making judgments about things. It's taking pragmatic life issues and deciding what's right and what's wrong on how to handle it, right? And what do we learn about you and I needing to develop that kind of ability? As a, as a matter of fact, we really kind of have to develop this, strengthen it. Okay. How well does the world handle um, making righteous judgments? They don't. That's it. If you, if you do not know the king of righteousness himself, if you have not been in relationship with the God of righteousness, how can you make any kind of thing righteous? Because it's from the mind, right? The reasoning of the mind that assessments are made. So for you and I then, I was, is that mine? No. Okay. Oh, okay. Sorry. We're distracted just a little. I don't know why. Usually I'm not. Um, when you think about m making judgment, though, you have, to draw, you have to draw this big picture in your life, sort of, of, of weighing things out, not acting emotionally. What happens when you let the emotions start to rule how you make judgments? Yes. What does, the, what does the flesh tend to draw its, its reasoning from? Yeah. Experiences, right? Our personal experiences. So if we've had an experience in one way or another, go ahead. Yeah. Actually, that's probably... Yes. Yeah. Right. Sometimes making righteous judgment is, is going to even hurt you. Sometimes you're going to have to make a judgment about what's right or wrong. You might be the victim in the end of it. They might get something that you're not going to get, or they might get their way and you won't, right, in making righteous judgment. So righteous judgment, the, he says to us in that chapter 6, the, the wise are able to decide between brothers in matters about life. The righteous also are going to have to keep in mind that we're going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, why does he make mention of that? We're going to make, we are going to inherit the kingdom of God. What does that make you, when, when you're speaking of the subject of judgment, what? Yeah, and what is our, and okay, and you're going all the way to the, to the new heaven and new earth, right? But what about the millennial kingdom era? Yeah, we are going to actually be the ones to be making judgment. How do we develop the skills to be able to make right judgment? 
practice it out now. If you're gonna get if you're gonna get it right then, you gotta get it try to get it right now. And in in the here and now, it's a matter of where do you get your right thinking? From his word. We're back to God's word again and back to relationship with God. So through through the word of God and through prayer and intimacy with God, those two things merging together within us, we are given uh, something that he speaks of called the mind of Christ, right? And when you're given the mind of Christ and you begin to exercise it, then you learn how to make the right judgments between what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's not, right? And we will make some mistakes along the way. And guess what? That this too is human and it's okay. But to not even try is the biggest failure of all. So you and I need to stop seeing jud- making judgment as a negative and see uh, see it as a as a as a positive. Someone see if they can put a spin on that for me. How would you without using the word judgment because it's kind of a negative connotation? I think you just answered your own question earlier. You're welcome. (laughs) That was easy, wasn't it? (laughs) Was much easier than you thought. I mean, actually, though, it's easier said than done. The doing of it is the hard part and and, and the grace that God can give you. So now the next step is in prayer, you know, bring in as many people as you can that can help you exhibit that, that sense of we all make mistakes. This can be fixed. We can move forward in this. God wants wholeness in your life. You know, it does require repentance. But if you are re- if you are truly repentant, you know. However, I can tell you that there have been times in in situations where it's like, how many times can I say I'm sorry about that? How many times do I have to say I'm so sorry? I really messed up. But then every time an issue comes up, that one comes back up in your face. That's not fair, right? Yes. Jerry. Yes, that's exactly, I think we're almost all the way back to where we started. It's all about intimacy and relationships. So back in chap- those first four chapters, where it ta- why did the divisions begin? Why was the brokenness even started? Was because there wasn't, first of all, relationship with God going on. And then after that got broken, then there started to be fractions amongst the believers because they were following men rather than God. And then intimacy and relationship with the body on the whole was not there. So chapter 1, verse 10, where he says, I desire that you be made complete, was an impossibility. They are broken in their relationship with God. They were broken in their relationship with one another. Yet they were all showing up at the same church on Sunday morning, and there's this clash that's constantly going on. I would say, um, well, let, let me rephrase it this way. What would you say about that in your personal churches today? I don't want, you know, I don't want dirty laundry. I just want to know, do you see that that's a lot of the problem that we have when we have issues in our churches? 
this brokenness of unity, brokenness in relationship, a lot of it systemically comes from not even having a good relationship with God, a, knowledge, a true knowledge of God. You and I, that's one thing I just cannot exhort you guys enough. This, this kind of study is what is going to draw you close to God, so that you stay connected with the word of God and the truth of God, because it's the doctrines that you must learn. It's very easy to drop into a text somewhere and just draw something out in the moment and you get an emotional hug and it makes you feel good in the moment you walk away but then how long does that stay with you but when you actually spend time studying as we have very systematically digging these truths out what are you you're what are you learning that's different from those emotional hugs there you go that's it you're learning who your God really is and you're learning his character and you're learning the application of what he wants you to do with the, these truths. So the deeper you are into study, the longer you spend in prayer with God, the healthier you personally are and then you become a healthy member of the body, right? That's right, in, in, which is going to kind of lead us at some point when we hit the spiritual gifting too because people often complain they don't know what their spiritual gifting is. How do you ever learn where you fit in that body of Christ if you aren't exercising it in some capacity? You have to get engaged, right? You have to get involved to, on some level. Ministry is essential in your relationship with God. Uh, okay, Chapter 7 then came our subject of marriage and singleness, right? It was a long chapter. What did you learn there that you maybe didn't know before? And how do you think this fits into this bigger issue of this church that they're having, the problems that they are having? Yeah, wife might distract, yeah, or husband might distract, yes, yes, yeah, they will distract you, right, Susan, <laughs> experience, <laughs> okay, so it really was kind of a, almost humorous in a way, but once you dig it out, really, it boils down to relationships between one another, uh, the intimacy relationships of, of marriage is about a personal choice of where, you, where you're going to put your priorities in your life, right? But if you get married, is it wrong? No. As a matter of fact, i got to say, when God created Adam in the garden, he said it's not good for a man to be alone, right? We all, why, we wives know that. <laughs> right, yes. But the, but the, 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 the intimacy that you get of, that kind of union is, I think, essential. It, would you say, for those of you who are married, do you think that um, there's a level of maturing in you that has occurred because of marriage that you would not have gotten outside of marriage? <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I would never do for you what your wife can because I, I would not. That's right, you've got enough. <laughs> Please, no more. I don't need another wife to tell me. <laughs> right? Yeah, just one wife and one is good enough. I, I get it. Okay, because 
but in, in I think of this in my relationship with my husband, but that the intimacy between he and I, he can tell me things, and I don't like it, but he'll tell me things that others will never say to me, and vice versa. And in that, there's a real quality of life building and growing and maturing that can really be beneficial in a relationship. Now, it doesn't mean that outside of marriage, you're not going to get that or that you can't have that, but that there is something to be said for marriage as well. So Paul, as he presents this issue about do I marry and do I not, and is it okay and is it not, um, he kept falling back on his default position of where he was, right? Apparently had been married at one time and maybe at the time of this writing was not. Now, whether his wife had passed or whether she had left him because he had come into faith, you know, Paul's story is quite phenomenal. On the road to Damascus, he had been this Pharisee, and he was, you know, persecuting the church, and he had a, he had a great position amongst um, the clergy of that time, and so he has a man of power and position, and now he comes home and says, guess what, honey? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm now a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know what happened in that relationship. Did she stay? Did she go? Did she die? What? We don't know, but at the time of this writing, he was not married, and he said to the, to his, through his letter, I think it's better that you not. What was his reasoning in that? Yeah, if you're not married, you're not going to be as distracted. And what was his sense of urgency in that? What was giving him that sense of that was the right thing to do? Yeah, isn't that amazing to us? That I mean, you're talking two thousand years ago, but he was really saying, "I think you better. I think you'd be better off if you don't get married, guys." But think about that: thousand, two thousand years, and people Christians not getting married—that could have been a real problem, right? I mean, we want Christian families, right? We want children to be brought up in, in Christian homes because that's one of your best evangelism tools is how you raise your children. So in the end, what he was simply saying is whether you do or whether you don't, what was his bottom line message to them about it all? That's right. Exactly, because the one th the one big factor was kind of an obvious. He says, if you if you're burning with passion, get married. Don't let that end up being a stumbling stone in your life that causes you to fall into sin. You will fall into sin if that's an issue you are not able to handle. But if you can handle it, then I think you should just stay single because then you're focused, right? But his bottom line was, what I want you to understand is what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. That was in chapter 7, verse 19, right? That's what really matters. Keep the commandments of God. Whether you're single or not, just don't sin, however you decide. So you get to make that decision for yourself, right? Okay, let's move on to 8 through 10. What was the overall message there? Things that are stumbling blocks, and the counterbalance to that was, if you're not a stumbling block, what are you and I going to be? Edifying our neighbors. So rather than causing people to stumble, edify them. That's the, the, that's the goal of these three chapters is to teach you and I how to edify one another and to not cause our brothers to stumble. So what did you learn in those, verse, those cha three chapters? That's right. It, 
how does that, in a real practical way, work itself out in our lives? Are there issues that you can think of where you... Very good. Absolutely, because why would you want, even though you know alcohol is fine, there's, there's no sin in that in and of itself, if you're not being drunk, right, then it's fine. But if your sister comes who has a weakness in that area, there you go. Or you don't sip a glass of wine while she's sitting there, and probably in her mind all she's thinking is give me that whole bottle, right? So don't be a stumbling block to those in your life. Any other thoughts on that? There you go. Right. You have a choice. You either educate them so they understand that it's not, and if they come on board with you, then you're good. I had that happen in my life. I told you guys about that one time about dancing, and this young girl that you know, thought it was this huge sin, and so I taught her from the scripture about dancing, how it was fine, as long as you're not doing dirty dancing, right? (laughs) But the idea is, but if they are in your, in your, if you're in a relationship with them of any kind, and in their company, and they have a certain thing that really is offensive to them, and you're continuing to do it in spite of the fact that they keep saying to you, you know, don't do that, I don't like that, or whatever. Then it, it, at the heart of that, what's the issue? You're not really loving them, right? There's a, there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. You can have an option to bring your bag in H and or not. That's a statement of having a recycling at your house. These things that are kind of minor, but for some people... It's right. I can tell you, I had a conversation with a girl at HEB about recycling, and, and she was, whew, yeah, I stepped into it. I didn't mean to. It was not intentional, but, yeah, we, we got into hot. That's right. That is the point. So in the end, you kind of smooth it over, and you try to, you know, meet them where they're at. What would be the def- the decisive point, though, where the line that you won't cross in trying to recon- uh, or conciliate for them. There you go. As long as you are not sinning against God in what you're, what you're doing to allow them, if you're not condoning sin, that's overt and blatant sin, if it's an opinion about something, if it's a, if it's a lack of knowledge, particularly, do you think there's a difference also in how you treat those who are in faith and those who are not in faith? Obviously. A person not in faith, everything that they're doing is perspective-wise is out of line with righteous living, right? So there's going to be a lot of things they're going to share about their lives, and they're going to be so excited, and they want you to know, I just moved in with my boyfriend, and we're going to buy a house, and I'm going to have a baby, and, and you're sitting there going, where do I start, <laughs> right? But what would be the appropriate response? Yeah. Without condoning the sin, somehow express love, your goal would be at that point, once you've been made aware of all this, I've had this, ha- when I was working as a corporate chaplain, one of the vi- site visits I made, I remember this so clear, I'm talking 
through the window at this young girl and she's telling me about her and her boyfriend and how they're having um, in vitro so that she can get pregnant, but she's just living with her boyfriend. And I said, and I just said, you know, oh, I said, so are you all planning to get married at some point? And she said, oh, yeah, when my dad gets out of prison. Oh, oh yeah. So where do you start, right? Where do you start with that? that? That is a tough one to handle. And although I think I did okay, I may have not done okay. I'm just hoping God covers it all over with his blood because... I'm not a, you know, I, I don't have the ability to know all things. And she doesn't, she had never shared that with me before. I had no idea. But she was so excited about her and her boyfriend, and they were buying their first house, and she was going to hopefully get pregnant, and, and she was just living with a boyfriend. But that's the world that we live in. If that were a Christian, how would you handle it? quite differently. And this is the interesting thing about that. Sometimes a person claims to be a Christian, they're not really, but they claim they are. And in, in your discerning, you're going, I'm listening to all the things I know about this person's life. That person does not really know God. However, they're claiming to be. So now you need to deal with it slightly differently. Still in love, right? We want to be loving always. Any Christian that does not handle controversy and conflict and and problems in the world, and they do not do it in love, it doesn't matter what else you do in your life, it's nothing. It's the same thing as the, the 1 Corinthians 13 passage. Any gift you have without love, it means nothing. But we do need to work to the best of our ability to reflect God's righteous truths, to try to draw them into right relationship, either to correct them or to bring them into faith but it has to be done in love. It's love that edifies. Do not let your liberty be a stumbling block to others. Then Paul comes in in chapter 9 and gives a demonstration in his own life on something that's really pretty benign. Look, I have the rights to demand certain things because of my position as an apostle and as a pastor, right? But he says, I, I haven't, and I didn't. And Why? What was his heart? He wanted to win more people. So you know what? If he, had to, if he had to forgo the things that he had the rights to, it was fine with him as long as he was allowed opportunities to minister and to reach people for Christ. Yes. That's exactly right. We, we My husband tells me that all the time. Yes. Right. Boy, I tell you, and sometimes those nonverbal things are are the most profound because Yeah. Well, and I can and I can say that sometimes it's this it's those real um subtle and quiet ways that people express love and express truth. You, you, sometimes you can just be present and your very presence is enough to convict somebody. You know, they, they know how you are and then they see how they are and you can be present when they do something and all you have to do is lock eyes for five seconds. And they're like, yes, that's right. Absolutely. That's right. Right. That's a, that's a good example. Very good.
Okay, and then he he goes into chapter 10, and he again, he speaks about um, a warning. He really gives a warning here in chapter 10. Um, and that is that although you are going to love, don't get out of line with righteousness either. Don't go so far into trying to exhibit love that you condone sin or that you somehow convey to others that you're okay with that. Totally. Oh, it's just fine. You can live your life any way you want. No challenge whatsoever. There has to be balance. And I think that's why in chapter 10, then he follows this on. He says, you need to be aware um, that, that there are, what he does is he brings up what happened to Israel, right, in the wilderness and how they also, they craved evil things rather than um, being thankful to God for all that God had done for them and all, that they began to go back into their old way of thinking and living. Um, he, he then follows that to say, now look, those people that fell back into that, and don't you do it, but they fell back into it, what happened to them? They died in the world. That's it. So just always keep balance in, in our lives. I do think that with Paul's message here in Corinthians, we keep seeing that, that healthy balance of the pragmatic, righteous truth with the, the loving exhibit that is gentle in the way that we deal with it. So you can be gentle, but yet still righteous, right? And there has to be a healthy balance in this. But he warns that you and I personally don't... I think people with mercy gifts have the, have one of the biggest problems with this conversation, and that is they they want so much to win souls that they're willing to condone anything, and then they become in that they actually become a stumbling block. Okay. Okay. How do we deal? Okay, I'm at, all right, throwing it out there. What do we do? <laughs> okay, so so that would be one way of one way of handling it would be to actually find something that really would prevent you from going and but it feels legitimate enough that washing the hair maybe not but but you know if there's a way to to get out of it basically so you don't have to deal with it. Okay, that's one way. It would work. Okay. But your family, okay? Is it the couple inviting you or is it somebody you know inviting you to See, good job, Susan. You handle them differently. You do. The one who claims to be a Christian, if they're living in overt sin, do you condone it and allow it? Or do you call them on the carpet on it? If they're not believers and they're doing this, then you handle it slightly different, correct? Am I, are you following? It absolutely could. So how do you deal with that? Believer, not believer, 
I know what I. Oh. Okay. Guess. Yeah. In his case, it's over. Though. They're going to the marriage of these two. So that's slightly different. It's another, it's another nuance to that situation. You can't, you can't ignore what they're going to be doing. What they're going to be doing is, is okay. The first question is, is it okay for a man and a man or a woman and a woman to marry? No, it is not. According to whose whose law God this is why in the section that we just came out of on marriage it's it said but just don't sin keep God's commandments right do it according to what God has said um so if the answer is no now the next question is now what do I do since they're very either very close friends or family I'm not sure what she's implying but they claim to be Christian but they're going to be doing this overt sin regarding marriage how do you handle it? I think you, well, this could be simply your opinion. Um, you express your love and you speak truth. Very good. I like that. So you express love. Okay. Yeah, okay. Right. Can you see how pragmatic these lessons have been for us? Because now what you're doing is you are going to, we, I don't know whether we'll ever get to a, a sufficient answer for him. When it really comes all down to it, whose decision is it? It, it Well, God, yes, but him to do. But whose decision is it on how he's going to handle it? It's Heinz's choice. So what Heinz has to do is he has to filter all these pieces of information through a plumb line that's standard. The standard is the word of God. Now filter everything through, how would God handle this, right? And that is, that is a little tricky because there's all these nuances to it. But what, you, what we now know, according to what we see here, he says flee evil things. He says keep God's commandments, whatever it is that you do. How, whatever your decision is, just don't violate God's commandments. And now you have to look at this one situation and say, you know, in this relationship, am I going to sever it by doing this? But then we're going to look at that in this next, in today's homework, if we get to it. Um, we are, we are going to look at the fact that there's also the other side of that, and that is, do you not tell them truth? Because what is more important, the earthly marriage and you attending a function or their eternal life with God and their knowledge of what's true and what's not true? Yep. Thank you. That's it. Yes. Right. 
So they're going to watch you engage. This is exactly what 1 Corinthians 16 does when, he, when he's talking. It looks like a real benign kind of closing about, you know, greet each other with a holy kiss and so forth. But then he throws in this one other little statement in there. And it's like, no, wait a minute, what's going on here? So I want to cover that with you this, this morning. But yeah. Okay. So because other people are watching. And you might be a stumbling blow, uh, block to others if they see you attending that wedding. So you have to weigh that all out. I know. No. Yes. How can you do that? Yeah. That's not all that, but that's really not, neither here nor there. It's, what's really important is doing what God wants you to do in this situation. And it's, it takes some finessing. This is why the wisdom and the maturity that you have in your knowledge of all the pieces to what's going on here has to be already in place because you know what? Life throws these things at you at any given moment. And so when you and I have done what we've done, prepared ourselves through all these, think of all the varieties of subjects we've hit, and we've had a little bit of training on each one of them, but it's enough that when we have a life scenario come at us, we can say, okay, well, this is what I know. I know this, I know this, I know this. In the end, you have to make a decision. And if you prayed through it, then God is going to take care of the rest. You're going to do the very best that you can to make the right choice. You sure can. Yep. You sure can. How many of you guys have done commentary work even through our time in this study and in all the ones before? And you get into a commentary and he get he, they they can suck you in and they are dead wrong and you know they're wrong because you've already studied it for yourself, but yet they are so, you know, convincing. But what they do is they take a verse out of its context and say, This is what I think it means. But if you say, no, let's put it back in the context and look at the flow of thought. Now let's say, what do we think it means, right? That's what we're training ourselves to do. And this is the training, I believe, that is so essential for the, for the body of Christ. We would have less divisions. We would have more unity. We would have more love. We would have more righteous judgments made. And we, we would have a healthier body of Christ. And this is what we're aspiring to. We're aspiring to get to a place of really glorifying God in our lives on a daily basis. This is where we're headed. Um, sometimes when we're deep in the trenches of the, this work that we're doing, it's hard to see that's what, where we're, at, we're headed. But you have to do the work first and then come full circle back and do what we're doing here today, and that is discuss. How does this fit? How does this apply? What, because now we have enough knowledge to have an a, a intelligent conversation as opposed to an emotional conversation, right? Okay. All right. So now, now we're through. Okay. So that was about love that edifies. And then we hit uh, a segment. Now I kind of broke mine down a little bit differently than what they did. I took 11 all the way to 14 and titled it disorder in the church. Okay. Cause they, there was all kinds of disorder that was going on in the church assembly. However, we do know that 12, 13 and 14 specifically is all on spiritual gifts. But what was in 11? There were two dysfunctions that were going on. Do you remember what they were? Yeah. 
Head coverings for women and the other issue? The Lord's Supper. So those were the first two. And then the third issue that they have was about how they were handling spiritual gifts. And then they spent three chapters on it. They honestly should have kept those three chapters one chapter. And, and our segment division would have been 11 through 14 about disorder and him handling the disorder that was going on in how the church was actually functioning when they came together as an assembly. And so he, he covers on that. So when in the end, what did you learn? Chapter 11 was has one of the most interesting ones in it that we all um, have seen misunderstood. How do you understand chapter 11 about the women and the head coverings for women? What did you learn about that? Well, there, it, it, there was a cultural thing, um, but the, what was the sin that was going on that was the dysfunction? contentiousness. So these were women who, even though there was a, now we can take a different subject, right? Whether it be, I can remember growing up and women weren't allowed to wear pants yet. Women weren't wearing, you go to church, you put your dress on, right? Um, for some of you, even to this very day, there is the issue of head coverings when you go to church because it becomes, it is still a tradition in some churches. Um, but whatever the issue is, the bottom, the, the systemic sin in what was going on where these women were being rebellious about it. There, there was a contentiousness of these women bucking up against the system. Now, what did that tell you about the heart of those women? Okay, this, this, just basically a selfish, and they were really obviously, it has nothing to do with what we're dealing with today with women, right? About women wanting uh, equality and women wanting, you know, oh yes, it is, it, it exactly is. Now, this was really cool. It's subtle in here, but in this, I saw how God lays out for us an understanding of design, God's design for the man, God's design for the woman. Are they the same? No. But are man and woman equal in God's eye? Yes. So there's an equality amongst men and women in relationship, but is there a distinction in our roles, our gender roles? Now, how does that fit in our world today? It is strongly being challenged right now. I mean, they don't even want to have two different bathrooms anymore, and they don't want you to identify a he or a she anymore. It's ridiculousness. It's to the point of total insanity. I, I don't know how it's gone this far and how those of us with, with right thinking have allowed them to go as far as we have at, at, at what we're seeing right now. But what, if, what do you know now that you did not know before about how God's design was for men and women's roles? What is the role of man? Pardon? Okay, to love is, I love that one. As Christ loved the church, don't forget that part because that's the part where he dies for the church. <laughs> we just want to throw that in there. Yes, okay, so he is to love his wife, but what is his role as a husband? He is the head of the house, right? And what, so, and by design, what does he do? What is his primary function as a head of the house? He's the provider, the priest, and the protector. 
right? So those are his three primary roles as the man of, of any relationship between a, a husband and a wife. What about the wife? What is, what is the woman's role? <laughs> you are expelled. <laughs> yes. But okay, so a woman's role is to be, what are we called in uh, Genesis? The helpmate. And as a helpmate, what does that express to us? And biologically, what is obvious is our role. We are to do to take care of the home, the, the home caregiver. If the husband is out providing and protecting, someone needs to be in keeping the, the fire going and cooking the meals and cleaning, right? Now, I know that that is not a popular message with a lot of people. And it does not mean women cannot work outside of the home either. So don't take it too far either way. But it does mean that, the, that there is a role designed for women by God that actually, when lived out, women are happiest in and men are happiest in if they both respect one another's role and give an equal value to them. Just because he's making the money doesn't mean that she doesn't have equal say in how the money is spent, right? Because while he's working outside the home, she's working inside the home. He gets a paycheck. She doesn't get a, a financial paycheck, but the money that's coming in is both of them because they're both working, right? If it's being done correctly. So, if, so she is the, the caregiver in the home. What else is she? Obviously. She's the child bearer. And by virtue of being a child bearer, what is she also? The child rearer, right? She's the one in the home physically caring and tending for the needs of both her husband and her children, uh, giving birth to children if God so grants to them. If not, hopefully they can adopt or, or do other things, whatever it is that, that you know God opens for them. And she is to be the helpmate in whatever capacity that might. Now, for some women, that does mean working outside the home. Maybe at, at a certain point in a life, you need to work outside the home to help the husband. Great. You know, we can work outside the home, but it has to be that there's a mutual understanding that there is a designed role by God. And as long as we do, and the, one of the reasons you do not want to violate that, absolutely do not want to violate that, is how does Christ equate himself with the relationship of marriage? What, what is that relationship co uh, comparison? And do you remember what book to find it in? In Ephesians. And what does he say in Ephesians? Just as head of the wife. So there's a comparative uh, imagery or analogy that's made. They compare of Christ in the church to the husband and the wife. And just as Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the head of the wife. And when you, when you flip that upside down on its head and the husband becomes the, le the other role and the wife takes on the other, his role of protecting and providing and, and, um, being the spiritual leader, when you flip it on the head, then you've got, now you've got the woman who is the bride being the head over Christ, imagery-wise. And that's a problem because you've messed the gospel message up. The gospel is in that whole s testimony that is given to us. Mm-hmm. Good, good job. I'm so glad you bring it up. Go ahead. Well, pretty much it was about people gratefully and humbly doing the job that they were desired. 
Would, yeah. Actually, that's a really good point there about the idea of not of reflecting God correctly in the world. That's a lot of what we're seeing here, and this is as we make our decisions. That's our our goal: reflect God appropriately. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. I think, you know, when it makes mention about the angels, we talked about a couple of interpretations about what does that mean on account of the angels. And he doesn't expound on it. He never comes back to it. It's just kind of said in passing as if they understood. And I think in the context of the flow of thought here about rebellion, that is, in fact, what he's talking about. The angels rebelled, and what happened? What happened to those angels who did rebel? They were judged by God. They were cast out. And so what God is saying is don't be rebellious against authority and about position. The angels were given an abode, a specific place, and a specific role by God. He equipped them for exactly what they were going to do, and they rejected it. They wanted more. And sometimes women do that. We think because of the world's teaching that being a home caregiver and being a supporter to our husband is a demeaning position, and it is not. I mean... I work longer hours sometimes than my husband just because I'm in the home, which means I get up and I start my work, and until I go to bed at night, I'm still working often, right? Um, and he recognizes that, and he, and he is thankful to me for that, and that is what it should be, just as I am thankful that he gets up every day and goes to work and brings home that paycheck. So it's a mutual thing. So that's what Corinthians um, in 11 through 12 was about that. And spiritual gifts hits on the same kind of thing. It's a controversy about, uh, about being rebellious in the way that things are being done and, and handling it in an improper way. These were, this particular church was taking one particular gift, which was the speaking in tongues, and they were abusing it, right? And he lays out the correct order. What did you learn about that? Anything special? that you didn't know before? What is the correct order if you want to use spiritual gifts within the congregational gathering of worship? That's right. Right. Because why? It's, it is confusing. There you go. The whole point to congregational worship is to edify the congregation. If no one is edified except the person that's speaking himself, it's of no value. And so it has to be handled correctly. Yes, speaking in tongues is a genuine, authentic, real gifting. It's still present in our world today. It will always be here until the day Christ comes. But it is to be handled correctly. It's... I think the best definition I ever heard was my girlfriend who called it evangelism in a foreign language. Now, then there's the other speaking in tongues, which is the prayer part. For people who are given a prayer language, as they call it, I used to be real resistant to that idea, but the older I get and the more I'm in the Word of God, I can see that there could be great value in that. For a person who is actually given a ministry by God to pray for the church, sometimes you don't know what to pray. You really are at a loss. And the, the troubles and the problems in your church are so deep, 
and they're so complex and you don't know all the situations even you have no idea that you kind of can get to that place so in your prayer privately which you don't talk about to everybody and not everybody's going to know but it's between you and God and in that time there could be that that kind of a of a prayer language I have never experienced so I don't know what I'm talking about but I would I'm just saying I'm going to show grace and say people who who claim a prayer language good but you can't use it in the congregational gathering that's not where where it's supposed to be okay show humility and understand that corporate gathering is for corporate blessing it's to edify the whole church Okay, now in 1 Corinthians 15, we just came out of what a fantastic, I, I'm not going to have time to go back over all of it, but you and I know that when we went into these cross-references this week, there was complete confirmation of what he said in 1 Corinthians. When he goes into 2 Corinthians 15, did he pretty much says the same thing, yes? Did you notice that? That almost, it, I mean, he adds a little bit. Were there any additional insights in 2 Corinthians 5 that you did not see in our 1 Corinthians 15? There was kind of a list. I do want to do this list with you real quick. We are up to present day work. Aren't you happy? <laughs> it was a very good discussion, though, guys. Great, great uh, insights there and sharing. One of the things that, uh, that kind of stood out at me was the, the comparison between what he does in 1 Corinthians 16 after 15 follows 16, right? Same flow of thought, same message. There are, even though we have uh, pair, uh, chapter divisions, in the letter there were no chapter divisions, right? So the flow of thought is still there. He does exactly in 1 Corinthians 16 that's done in 2 Corinthians 5, but he mingles it or intertwines it within there. And that is he gives an exhortation to them about what to do then while we are yet in the body. We, we have thoroughly looked at what is it that we are... Um, looking forward to what kind of body how are the dead rays what did just by review what do you remember how how is or what kind of body do we are we going to have an imperishable one that's how it's going to be raised it's going to be raised imperishable raised in glory right there you go. Okay. And he, and he says, and basically in, in um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49, he says, and we will bear the image of who? Of the heavenly. And who is the heavenly? It's Jesus. It's, it's a reference to Jesus. You could put a cross right on top of the heavenly if you wanted to for references. And, he, and in that, then he goes on, he says, but not all will sleep, meaning not everyone will die, but everyone will what? We will be changed. We will be raised. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. And I always remind people in, in faith, and this is something, I actually had a, a young woman, I remember this conversation real clear, 
it, in my dining room and she came to me and she was all in tears and she had just had a, a report about how the earth is going to explode and the ozone is going to eat us up and we're just going to be gone. I said, that's not true. We're going to have plenty of water. We're going to still have you know, this earth as it exists because Christ is coming back here to rule and reign for 1,000 years. And she looked at me for like half a second and, and just this big smile. Oh, yeah. You know, Whoosh, she was relieved, right? Again, it's back to the, the, the basics of truth. If you take them back to the truth and say, don't fret, don't worry. God says this is what's going to happen. You do not have to worry that this world is going to blow up any sooner than he is going to do it. And I said, that won't happen until after the thousand years. And at that time, we will be taken into the new heaven and new earth. Right? She was happy. Okay. Now I want you to go and look in um, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 10. This was your homework. In, uh, I guess that was the week one. Let's just talk about this. Um, while yet in this body, what are we supposed to be doing while we are waiting for this glorious moment when he will uh, catch us up into the sky where we'll be with him forever, where we'll have an imperishable body, we'll have a body just like his. What are we supposed to be doing according to first, uh, Second Corinthians 5? Mm -hmm. We are to be pleasing to the Lord. While we are waiting, do all things so that you are pleasing to him. Um, someone go back to, or, or tell me, and well, tell me why. Why do you think Paul has that motivation? What do you think he was uh, making a, a reference to? Was he, what is it? Very good. The judgment seat. Now, what does that remind you about what we've already studied in this chapter? There you go. First Corinthians three. Go back to first. Go back to first Corinthians three and look at verses thirteen to fifteen, and you see the judgment seat. So what Paul is looking forward to here then is Paul is making reference to reward. Rewards at his coming, right? He didn't say any of that, but that is what he's making reference to. And when you go back and look at that passage, that's in fact what he says there, that Paul is looking forward to. So we are to be pleasing to the Lord while we're here waiting for the body. As we wait, while you wait, yet in this body, right, we're going to be pleasing to the Lord. And we're going to remember there's a judgment seat coming. And when Jesus comes, there are rewards with him. Um, he's, you could even make a mention of this one here in Luke. We didn't go there, but I did. Luke 19.21 is where he says to those um, who are faithfully serving him, what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. So that's what he's saying there. Okay. And in verse 7, what does he tell us we are to do? We are to walk by faith. What does that mean to you? In context of this, what does that mean? Does that 
That's right. I tell you what, how, how does that affect you? He, he actually says in verse, verse 8 something that kind of is a companion to it. What? Yes, he, he does prefer to be with the Lord, but while we are in the body, what does he say in 8? We are to what? Always to be of good courage. Why? Yeah, because you have this hope. How about um, how about Hebrews eleven? Go back. Somebody open up eleven one. Just read that very first thing. But you could read all of Hebrews chapter eleven, the whole thing. But somebody read verse one. Yes, and so, does someone have it open? Hebrews. I'm sorry. I'm making you open your Bibles. Oh, it's terrible. Bible study and open the Bible. Uh huh. Uh huh. Kind of. Okay. Shh. Okay. Wait a second. Do you have it? Okay. Read it. Okay. It's an assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not seen, not yet seen. They are coming. It's, there's an assurance of it. But if you're living in that, you can always be of good courage. Right? All right. Now, um, let's go on. Okay. That kind of, I just wanted to exhort you in that. while Because it's easy for you and I to get really caught up in, yay, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait. And you get a little discouraged while you're here in the waiting mode. But while he's saying, what he's really saying to us there is, while you're in the waiting mode, we are waiting for that new body and I can't wait for it because I got too many aches and pains anymore, right? One day I'm going to have this glorified body and we're going to be as Christ is and I, I can't wait. But in the meantime, don't grow weary in doing good. And he says that at the close of 15, right? What did he say at the close of 15? Yeah, read it, 1558. Does that almost sound like a repeat here of this Second Corinthians 5? Yeah, he's saying, look, just don't faint in the, in the time of waiting. While you're waiting for this day when Christ is going to give you this new body, don't give up on the doing of good deeds. Continue in it, and it's not in vain. It is going to happen. Why did he have to say it's not in vain in chapter 15? What was the problem in 15 that was presented? 1 Corinthians 15. That there were some who were saying there is no resurrection from the dead. And so he went through this entire layout that we covered last week. I'm going to go through it very, very quickly with you. The theme of that 15 was that the, it's the gospel of, of death and resurrection, right? He starts first by saying the gospel that you believed and which, by the way, was witnessed was that Christ is, was resurrected. That was what the witnesses proclaimed to some. There are plenty. You could even go talk to some. They're still living at that time. They could have gone and checked it out. Then he says, if there is no resurrection, your faith is in vain. That's, you know, it's pointless if, if there was no resurrection. Then he tells us Christ is the first fruits. He is, in fact, that. He is, and he's the first. And what is a first fruit? What does that tell you is going to follow? 
If there's only a first, then you know there's something to follow, and that's us, right? So Christ is the first fruits. And then he tells him, don't be deceived. And then there's that section that was a little tough again about um, baptism. What do you now know about that section on baptism in 15? What's being spoken about there? What is it that those who are baptized for the dead? Who is that? Yes, it's about us. There you go. Why bother? Why are you getting, going through these processes of baptism when symbolically that's representing the resurrection from the dead? You don't even believe it. Why are you doing it? And then he follows it with another point. Why am I (laughs) suffering like I am? Why am I daily dying to myself? Why am I going through all these things? He gives them two points experientially. Remember, we broke it down by, by uh, different ways of apologetically answering the question. He first gave them that historical argument. Then he gives them a logical argument. Then he gives them a theological argument. Here he is giving them an experiential argument. And that concluded the question about, is there a resurrection from the dead? Yes, there is. And then he goes into thir- uh, 35 all the way through 58, and he, he handles a couple of, actually handles three more questions, right? Um, one question is, with what kind of body do they come? The other is, how are the dead raised? And the last one was, what about those who are still alive? So we've covered all that really thoroughly. Now let's move into 1 Corinthians 16. Oh, I wish I had more time. Um, okay, 16. Paul is, how did you break this down? Let's give our paragraphs very quickly. One through four, what is he giving to you? What's the subject? Okay. The collection for the saints, right? And he gives you some real pragmatic steps on what they should do and how they should do it. Any insights in there that somebody wants to share that you found difficult to understand in any way? Yeah, I figured that one was really easy. Okay, then I'm going to group 5 all the way to 12. Now, you can break it down 5 to 9, 10 and 11, and then 12. You can break it down into 3. I broke it down into 1 and gave it one title. What's going on in those verses 5 to 12? Just like a good Christian friend does. It's ministry plans, though, right? It was the ministry plans that were going on for three people. The one was for Paul. Who was the other one? Timothy. And then the last one, Apollos. Thank you for the There you go. Right. So, he's, so that's what's going on in 5 through 12. It's all about ministry plans of these men. 13 to 18 covers what? That's right, exhortations. Exhortations, and I put an instruction. Good, very good. Exhortations and instructions, 13 to 18. Then 19 to 24. Keyword, key repeated word is greet, 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 greet. So we can say greeting. Now, you may not have gotten this one, this last part, but did you know there's also a warning in there? Yes, good for you. And warning. 
Okay, so there's a greeting and a warning. And so what we want to talk about real quickly is the, is that p the warning. And um, we could cover the exhortations, but in essence, did, I want you to look. What do you see right here in comparison to your list of, of uh, instructions and exhortations that are in 13 to 18? Yes, yes. Yes, very good. Okay, so because that was one of Kay's questions was how do you see this segment here about exhortations and instructions? How does this fit? Well, literally, he almost systematically goes from chapter one all the way through to the end and says, now this is what I want you to do, right? I want you to be on the alert. I want you to stand firm in the faith. I want you to act like men. That one was funny. How do you act like a man? You be courageous and be brave. <laughs> I looked it up. <laughs> Word studies. Be strong. Do all in love. Boy, is that not a strong emphasis. Do you see how the systematically is covering pretty much the whole book? He's going back and saying, now the solution to all these problems is this. Do this, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, do all in love. And then the last part he covers on these instructions, the last part of this is, has to do with um, how the treatment of those who are devoted to ministry. Interesting to me that he felt it necessary to actually address that. But he gave them two words of encouragement, one in 16 and the other one was in 15 and 18, both. What did you see was his exhortation about how you are to treat those who are devoted to ministry. Be right, be in subjection. Now, we, we can talk, we, I'm, we're not going to talk about it, but think, wrote, just let that roll around in your brain a bit. Be in subjecting, subjection to such men and acknowledge such men. Just give them some respect, right? Okay, now, um, I want to go to this warning. Tell me what the warning says. Did that blow anybody away when you were reading through this and you went, oh, now that's weird. What does that mean, right? Did anybody examine that at all and do some work on it? Oh, yeah. That's the next part because there is a period after the first part. Hold tight, but if we can, we'll come back to it. The, the, um, yeah. I think it's Marantha. It's like Maranatha, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead, Martha. Okay, so if you don't have an intimate friendship with God, then what? Wow. Now, why would he say that in the middle of all of this greetings, 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 and greet each other with a holy kiss? What's the holy kiss about? Did anybody do research on that holy kiss? I have a couple of sheets on this. If you Google it, there's tons. Just Google holy kiss, and it'll give you all kinds of insights. 
basically a holy kiss it's a sign of greeting and we were talking about this earlier in our earlier discussion about how how you handle it also is being observed by the rest of the body of Christ and by unbelievers they're watching you right so you want to be careful that when you do things as a Christian you don't become a stumbling block and that you don't send a wrong message correct a holy kiss, it's a sign of greeting, yes, but it's also this. It's an expression of brotherly love and unity. It, sh- it expresses spiritual kinship with one another. It also expresses that there's a full acceptance of one another into the household of faith. In other words, I am affirming that this is my brother in Christ. So when you give this kind of kiss, this holy kiss that they would do, and we don't, yeah, probably a kiss on, there was a variety of ways that the kissing part took place, uh, but obviously it was all holy, it was all in, in good affection, you know. Often it's what we do when we greet one another, give each other a little hug or a little peck on the side of the cheek. You know, I did that one time at work and I regretted it because I, I forgot where I was at for half a second. <laughs> I greeted one of my one of my coworkers that when I was working as a cor- corporate chaplain. He's a believer though. And it just, you know, I, I, he gave me a little bit of a hug and I hugged him and I gave him a little kiss on the side of the cheek and he went, <laughs> and I went, oh, I'm not in church. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> you know, forgot where, forgot my place for half a second. But in doing that, there is a public statement of unity, of oneness, and of acceptance of one another. It's actually an identifying mark. Do you remember when Christ said that that he was going to be kissed by, I'll be betrayed by the one who kisses me? Um, There are all kinds of verses about this concept of identifying uh, who someone is or who they're supposed to be by a kiss. It was done righteously in recognition that all believers are brothers and sisters in the family of God. Now, define again the person what is the what kind of what is they what is it that they're not this person is not doing that's going to be accursed? Okay, okay, right. So I meet you at church. You come up to me. I'm an unbeliever. I'm not going to make you the unbeliever. I'll be the unbeliever. I'm in black today. Somebody told pointed that out. So I'm an unbeliever. And the tradition is, according to what he's saying, is greet one another with a, with a holy kiss. So you come to me. Maybe we're, maybe we're not at church. Maybe we're out in public. We're in the public square. People understand the holy kiss associated to the church, right? And I, maybe I'm out in the, in the square, and I'm even promoting something that's non-Christian, non-godly. And you come up to me, and you give me a holy kiss. What have you just done? You've endorsed it. Isn't that interesting how this is thrown in here at the end of all of this? So it's kind of back to what our conversation was uh, with Heinz earlier about this dilemma of, do I give them the holy kiss and attend this function? Or do I not? So this really applies very well with his dilemma that he's going through. Because people are watching what he's going to do. Is he going to give an endorsement or is he going to withhold that? Because in this particular statement, what Paul says is, you're to greet, you're to greet, you're to greet, you're to give a holy kiss. And then he says, but those who do not love the Lord, he is to be what? Accursed. Now, 
two kinds of messages I think are kind of going on here. Number one, he has spent this whole book talking about a true gospel message in how the church lives it out, right? It's not, the gospel is in there, but it's primarily in there through how they're to live it out in, as a church body. And so on the one hand, he's saying, but in the church, you're to do this, right? And you're to greet each other with a holy kiss, but if anyone does not love the Lord, don't extend to them that holy kiss. Don't act like everyone's in the household of faith. Don't condone their rejection of Christ and then act like they are still a part of your inner circle. So it's actually a contrast. Greet them, greet them, holy kiss, accursed. Do you catch it? Did you see the contrast statement? It's making judgment. Very good. Isn't that amazing? So he is actually making, so he's kind of he's giving us a couple of messages in here. Here's some insights I drew out. The greeting of a holy kiss was a fellowship custom, and it conveyed a oneness or unity of the two parties, right? Number two, Paul's message in 110 could be expressed or conveyed by a holy kiss. In 110, where he says, I desire that you be unified of one heart and one mind. So in a way, he's kind of concluding his book about what he started in 110. He's saying here in the end, greet each other with a holy kiss. You guys have been divided. There's been disunity among you. There's been fractions among you. I want you to come together in an in a expression of love with one another. And so consequently, to offer a holy kiss to an unbeliever would be to send a mixed signal to them or to anyone seeing it that they are part of that oneness without a commitment to Christ, without love for him. And so doing it, therefore, really would be sin, right? There seems to be a warning to this dysfunctional church, <laughs> right? They're also, just got to remember where they are. They're all, they've been doing everything wrong just about. Total dysfunction in this church. And he's saying basically to them, do not welcome into their inner circle of fellowship just anyone. You need to discern, as you said. There needs to be discerning. Uh, if they are opposed to a love relationship with the Lord, you are to, there's to be a, a separation between you and them on this. This is one thing you cannot do. You cannot, you cannot extend to them the holy kiss of greeting if they will not acknowledge Jesus. Absolutely. That's a different. Well, you know why there's a difference? Because this, this is symbolic and it represented something very emphatic at that time in history. We don't do it, have it so much today. Um, but if there were, if we had anything like this for us to take an unbeliever and put him through baptism, this is why we have baptism classes in our churches, why our pastors make sure people understand what they're doing before they do it, because they're making a public testament, which means when they leave that uh, baptismal, the water of baptism, and they begin to walk in this church and live in this church, the whole congregation is accepting them as a believer. So the pastor generally is really careful to make sure that whoever his he is baptizing actually does have that relationship. That's kind of what this is. This holy kiss was, we are, we are accepting you into this inner circle of love. We are, we are 
making a public statement by the Holy Kiss that you are of us, that we have unity with one another. And he's saying, be careful that you don't just offer that Holy Kiss to everyone. Make sure that they actually love the Lord. Interesting. Paul is making also a second, there's the other part of this that I saw. Paul is actually making a factual statement, not a mean-spirited remark. It kind of looks mean-spirited, doesn't it? In the middle of this, all of a sudden, oh, well, if he doesn't love the Lord, he, let him be accursed. Almost sounds like he's just being nasty, right? But he's not. He is simply declaring a part of the gospel, which is so often avoided for fear of looking judgmental or heartless, right? People don't want to talk about, well, if you don't, you know, the pastor will stand up there and he'll give a beautiful sermon about how people can come into faith. Do you ever see him end it with, and if you don't love the Lord, you're to be accursed, and you, or you are, you are accursed, but is it true? If they reject the message, the gospel that has been pre presented, are they accursed? Is it important to let them know that they are accursed? Is it, is it greater or lesser love to tell them or to not tell them? Is it greater love to tell them? Yes, yes it is. Why? Absolutely. Because it's a warning. So he's, he's actually giving a warning here as he concludes it. Look, these are all the things I've told you and I've instructed you and I'm telling you there's a day coming and there's a judgment coming and it's going to be all good and you're going to get this glorified body. But if you don't love the Lord, you won't get it. You will be accursed. Absolutely. What if nobody ever told you? What if you went to church, heard the gospel message, but you were going, oh, I don't know. But nobody says, look, if you reject this and you die today, you will be in hell. There will be an eternal reality for you apart from God. And if you don't tell them that, but how many times do you and I get judged if we say that? Well, that's true. That's another subject. But yes, there's even some believers don't think there's a hell, which just means they don't know the word of God, right? What's the point to heaven if there is no hell? I mean, well, it messes up everything. Okay, so, <laughs> but nonetheless, this is an essential and factual part of the gospel message. Any person who does not love, love the Lord is in fact accursed. He is condemned to eternal damnation. Their only hope is to repent and turn to faith in Christ. I had several verses. I'm just going to mention them. I'll, they'll be on the chart. I'll give them to you later. But if anyone does not love the Lord, he is accursed. And I gave you several references, cross-references that show you, if you do not have the Son, you do not have life, right? And so it's an... It, you, it's, he's not just making something up and he's not being mean. He's saying this is part of the gospel message. All right. Maranatha. Conclude us with Maranatha. Yes. So there's two messages in this, two possible interpretations of what. He follows it, though, I want you to note, he follows it right after he says, if you don't love the Lord, you're going to be accursed, right? So what do you think that Maranatha about the Lord's coming is actually saying? Is he saying, yay, the Lord's coming. I said, watch out, the Lord's coming, <laughs> right? It could be either. 
Because for you and I, who are waiting for the resurrected body, yay, the Lord's coming. But for you who don't love the Lord, Maranatha, the Lord is coming. So it could be either message, either interpretation there. It has two possible applications. I tend to hang with the with the warning part of it because it follows directly on the heels of, of that with the warning. But both both statements are true.